Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start with the markets with Joe Quinlan this morning, Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank head of CIO Market Strategy. Joe, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just start there because a question that comes up again and again that we filled a lot, the distinction, the difference, the spread between what is happening on Main Street and what is happening on Wall Street right now. Joe, how do you answer that question? Well, it's a good question. It's top of mind with our investors as well. They're kind of scratching their head what's going on. But I mean, you have to kind of part of the, the divide rests with the Fed, central banks around the world flooding the system with liquidity that's being put to use in a higher yielding asset class called equities. There is also the speed, in, in quotes, from Congress getting that package out, the fiscal package, aggressiveness on the part of the ECB. So I think maybe it's misplaced, but I don't think it's misfounded in the sense that the policy response, a la this time versus 08 and 09, much more directed, focused, bazookas. And I think I do think that gives a floor beneath equities as we grind higher. Now, is it over? No, no, no doubt about it. We need to have signs that all the stimulus is actually going to help Main Street. That's the next big test. Test. Joe, I know we've got a lot of unknown unknowns, but what's your unknown unknown on the equity markets in terms of choosing or selecting or allocating where to put the marginal equity dollar now? Is it large cap, bigger is better, small cap, international? How do you reset towards May 15th? I mean, Tom, we're, we're trying not to be too much of that crowded trade in and around healthcare and technology, but we're sticking with those two sectors. We're putting a little bit, you know, warming up a little bit here to financials because one of our thesis is bigger is better. The banks are well capitalized. They're going to work through this problem. And we do like the small cap companies. There could be some opportunities in and around biotechnology, biosecurity. So it's very selective. It's very difficult. We don't like to be stock pickers. We're not. But you've got to have to kind of step back and be careful where the valuations are today in certain sectors, where they're not, and how you play that out. So biosecurity, biotech, healthcare, and financials look for us some opportunities. What about international? I mean, John, John, help me here, John. Remind me, we had one quarter or quarter and a half of decent international outperformance. Is that right, John? One quarter, you're being kind. I think we've had a couple of days in the context of a massive decade-long rally in the S&P. Yeah, okay, fair. big so, tech names. John, we had, John's correct as usual. We had seven days where international <laughs> outperformed. Joe, when do I get on board international? I mean, come on, it's in the it's 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 tanked. It, it's tanked, Tom, and I would just I would do it on a sector by sector basis. So technology, Northeast Asia. So that's South Korea. That's going to be Taiwan. That's going to be Japan and the e-commerce giants of China. We know who they are because we're going to bifurcate the technological divide here globally. They're going to have their own system and we're going to have our own as well. And there'll be Korea and Taiwan stuck in the middle, so to speak. So there's not much to talk about when it comes to Europe technology, but life sciences, in Europe, are these are very good companies, great scientists, human capital, histories. If you look at the history of the drug companies started in Europe, right? It's going to come back to Europe as we solve these problems. So be sector-specific as opposed to country-specific. Joe, taking a step back, there's a question about 
the risk on field that we have right now and what it's pricing in. I think that Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley put it well, saying that there is a bearishness still in markets, but it shifted. He said it's a different kind of bearishness, one that accepts the extraordinary policy response as having done its job to stop the decline, but skeptical that it can lead to a sustainable recovery. Do you agree with the first premise that the policy response so far has done its job to stop the decline for the foreseeable future, even as we see an unemployment rate that will likely climb uh, up to 25% or beyond, according to some estimates? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, because Jay Powell and company move so quickly to provide the liquidity to all parts of the capital markets that staved off any huge blowout in credit spreads or any type of solvency issues thus far. Overlay that with a fiscal response as well. So I do think that policy response, as big and as fast, gives us some some comfort there. Going forward, however, though, we have to see Main Street kind of settle down. I think, and it's going to come, one, I mentioned this earlier in the sense that the healthcare industry, if you look at the GDP numbers, took a beating. But around the country, hospitals are now reopening. If you want one sector to reopen, right, it's not necessarily airlines or restaurants, it's the healthcare system, the hospitals, and they're doing just that. And so I think that's going to alleviate some of that unemployment plane in healthcare services, and that's going to be a surprise on the upside. But I do think we've got the bottom in, but we have to be realistic about the next consolidation phase before we get another significant leg up. Joe, I just wanted to round things out with a delicate question just on the psychology of things right now. It was something that hedge fund manager Dan McMurtry alluded to over the weekend. Do you think there's a social stigma attached with being long this market at the moment? So, what, is there a stigma being attached Is there a the social stigma attached to being long this market at the moment? I don't think so. Not, not necessarily a social stigma. I mean, being long the market, if you're in the right... Oh, come on. Let, me, let, me, let me refine the question, Joe. Coming on a question like this, how difficult, on a program like this, how difficult is it to say that you're long the market when we have this dreadful data in the labor market in the United States and worldwide? Okay, I would, I, I would say look at history. We'll work through this pandemic. Look to the other side. Uh, when it comes to the leaders, which is going to be technology, healthcare, biosecurity. So it is difficult because we're right in the midst at the trough, right? We're, 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 this is it. This is the point of maximum pain with the numbers coming in. But the markets and looking forward, think of 21, 22, we're going to be at ballparks. We're going to be in restaurants. So that's, I think, where the equity markets, and you can say they're projecting too far ahead too fast. I wouldn't disagree. But when you look out 18, 24 months from now, we're going to have a totally different conversation about probably debt, inflation, and other issues. But I do think there's growth on the other side, and there's opportunities now to put money to work. Joe Quinlan, thank you so much. Always brilliant. Bank of America, greatly appreciate it. Let's do this, folks. We're going to do this for Global Wall Street. We can talk about the VIX. We can talk about volatility. My amateur take is, you know, bigger number means more fear. Lower number means less fear. But it gets a lot more sophisticated. Dean Kernett joins us now, Macro Risk Advisors. And, Dean, I want to go right to there's a curve, which is the VIX. And then there's the guesstimate of where the VIX is out any number of months. And that curve now is very steep which I, I, I don't understand that. What does it mean, Dean, when you see a steep futures market for volatility? Right, thanks. Um, so it, it actually is quite interesting right now to look at um, 
the combination of <clears throat> the level of the VIX, which is, of course, way down from its incredible peak, but also still, relative to history, quite high. Um, to, so to see a high VIX, but also to see, as you noted, an upward sloping curve is actually pretty rare. Um, so let me just give you a quick uh, bit of perspective on that. So the end of 2018, remember we had that big risk off. Powell was tightening in the face of the market. Um, the VIX reached about 31 uh, on December 24th, uh, but six-month volatility was much lower. So that's an inverted uh, vol curve. The VIX is higher than future volatility. And now you have the opposite. So if I look, for example, at one-month implied volatility on the S&P, that's where the VIX comes from. That's about 24%. But if I look at six months, it's about 27%. So you have that upward slope. Um, how do I read that? I think it's a function of just the amount of artificiality that is in asset prices right now. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that folks are really struggling to make sense of what to do here. Um, there's been a massive economic sudden stop, a gigantic policy response from the government and the Fed. And it's just really difficult to know where asset prices are going to land. And so in some ways, we've punted that uncertainty out a couple of months. And that's why I see longer dated volatility out, you know, call it six months, clearing it at higher levels than the VIX is. Dean, what you said is really important for this moment, the artificiality of current pricing. And, and do you have a sense of kind of where that artificiality is coming from? Is it coming from uh, basically what is becoming yield curve control by the Federal Reserve? Is it coming from Washington, D.C.? Or is it coming from the hopium that, that we're going to see something more akin to a V-shaped recovery, at least in markets, uh, as we go forward? I think it's really at least of the first two rather than the hope. I think that uh, the degree of, uh, of support provided by uh, Congress and the White House in a bipartisan fashion so far has been unbelievably uh, strong. Uh, I saw one metric that said on a Q2 basis, personal income is actually going to be up. Um, so it just shows you how much of the hole that, at least for now, the government is filling in. And then on the second front, of course, the Fed, wow, what a tremendous amount of, you know, both explicit buying, a tremendous amount of forward guidance, you know, wading into the private uh, markets, and it's put a floor uh, in a large way under under asset prices. And it's just, listen, the, the old adage of don't fight the Fed, I, I don't think it couldn't be you know more relevant uh, than right now. It's really difficult to, uh, to get in front of this. Uh, and to some extent, I think this is <clears throat> the markets in a waiting game. You know, we're trying to gauge the policy response, uh, not just now, but the future wherewithal. And you're starting to see some breakdown of that in terms of the, the deficits gold in Washington, you know, McConnell starting to um, discuss that there are limitations to what we can do. Um, so it's, it's, it, that part is challenging. And then I think the other part that the, we're just trying to gauge is that the, the reopening, the efficacy of reopening, at least so far from my perspective, the scorecard there doesn't look promising if you look at other countries. It's, it's still obviously very early, but there's been a couple of setbacks in South Korea and China, uh, in Germany and Spain. Um, and so I think that's where ultimately the market's going to have to find some metrics to watch. Um, but I think the low VIX right now points to that it, it, it is in a little bit of no man's land in terms of figuring out the market, you know, what risk really is.
Dean, with that in mind, and you've touched on something quite important, the risk of reopening at a second wave is something likely to sit on sentiment for quite a while. Do you think that makes it difficult to rotate to the more cyclical areas of the market that have lagged in the rally off the bottom over the last two months? I think so. I was just looking at uh, the, the just growth versus value. The divergence this year is on the order of 50% outperformance growth versus value. And, and so, you know, if, if value is, is uh, embodied in cyclicality, I do think it's very tricky to, to really get, you know, behind the notion that, one, people will um, be able to come back because the infection rates are clearly coming down. And then, two, I think the psychology never is too long, but I think the psychology is pretty important. You know, folks, even if they were given the opportunity to come back, some are, but many are not. And I, you know, just given the leverage inherent in a lot of cyclical businesses, the balance sheet uh, considerations, and the degree to which they really need, you know, whether it's a fully stocked hotel, a plane with no seats empty, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the psychology makes that more challenging. Tom, I think this is the decision of the moment. And to make it really, really simple, do you stick with what's worked over the last six weeks or do you rotate to what hasn't? And what's worked is big tech. The big five, all positive year to date, the S&P 500 lower by 9, 10% on the year. It's just unreal how much outperformance we've had from the big five. Yeah, what's so interesting here is is you buttress it up against this liquidity solvency issue, John, that we've seen over the weekend. And certainly, you know, with the Columbia Airlines, Avianca, their bankruptcy and you know, you look at Lufthansa with a full bailout in Germany with potential 20% ownership by the government. It's not only two worlds, it's almost three worlds out there. Yeah, Dean, I think Tom's brought up something important. Things are still breaking. And you've shared something that, that I share with you, that when things move fast, they break. Have we seen all the broken parts of this huge move very, very quickly in the last few months? Yeah, I think that would be way too optimistic to suggest that even as 83 VIX is probably not coming back, that the aftershocks are likely not fully appreciated yet. You know, just think about post the financial crisis in 2010, we had the flash crash. 2011 and 12 is when the Eurozone sovereign crisis uh, began in full earnest. And those were, in some ways, aftershocks of the great financial crisis. Um, I, I just don't think so. Um, when you're seeing, I know you guys just covered the you know, uh, Fed funds futures trading north of 100 implied rates uh, in the U.S. below, um, you know, below zero. Um, we obviously saw the crude meltdown. It's just in a world where things are moving so fast and the policy response is just so enormous um, and the deflationary forces upon which the policy response is built are so enormous, it's just really difficult to, to think that we've got some you know, resolution that's not going to see some, you know, some crazy things happen. Um, and, and I think this is where one of the things, you know, we spent a lot of time on hedging at macro risk advisors, yeah. but also on portfolio construction. And I just think that gold deserves uh, an increasing allocation in the portfolio. It's uh, an asset that has negative correlation attributes to the risk complex. Um, and it, I'd like to say it's just long paranoia. And I think we are entering into a period of increasing, unfortunately, paranoia in the monetary system as we're going to you know, come to the market with $3 trillion of issuance in yeah. one quarter. It's just uh, we're kind of in no man's land. And so I'm just continuing to recommend to folks to, to really take a hard look at gold. Dean, really, really thoughtful stuff. Dean Kernett there of Macro Risk Advisors. 
We turn to the great stimulus debate in Washington now, and I've said repeatedly over the last few months, I've been really impressed with how well the administration has worked with the Democrats to get significant bills over the line. The question for many people in this market, Tom, is how long does that unity last? Yeah, well, it goes once, twice, and then there's the third time. John, you and I were talking about early May as being the time of the next discussion, and we're nowhere near that. We're past early May, folks, and now staggering into uh, later May looking for the next fiscal stimulus. It's good to get away from the three zip codes that we look at here in New York and possibly wander out to Indiana. Trey Hollingsworth is with the 9th District. This is the path from Indianapolis on down to Louisville and, of course, encompassing the University of Indiana as well. Congressman, wonderful to speak to you uh, today. How far removed are the Republicans of the House and the Republicans of the middle ground from the arch-Senate conservatives that are there? It's a great question. Look, there are many Republicans in the House that are concerned about the deficit, that are concerned about total U.S. debt. However, there is a strong push and a continued strong push from Republicans to find a pathway to build economic growth back. I mean, we saw a terrible jobs report on Friday. People want to ensure that those losses are temporary and not permanent because the last thing we want to see right now is this exogenous coronavirus shock to the economy become a long-term demand crippling shock to the economy this is so important congress and i really want to emphasize this there's a belief out there that the 15 percent unemployment heading to kevin hass's 20 percent is located in the cities it's where the viruses were the president makes clear these are blue regions that he doesn't care about etc how have you seen the job economy in the ninth congressional district no, it is not just in the cities. It is not just in blue states. I live in a very red state, and the job losses are real. I hear from families every single day that say, I thought I had a long-term job. I was seeing my wages grow up until just a month ago, and now I don't have a job and don't have prospects for getting a job anytime soon. And I think this is really challenging, getting back businesses open safely while mitigating risk, getting back individuals to being able to purchase things for their families, for their futures is hugely important. And that confidence has to start in Washington, D.C. That leadership has to start in Washington, D.C. Representative Hollingsworth, you've been a small business owner. Uh, We've seen reports that the small business bankruptcies could rise to 40% of all of the companies in six months if the shutdowns continue. How concerned are you that the program put into place so far has been ineffective at staving off these insolvencies as well as the subsequent layoffs that obviously are, are just escalating? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is how do we determine how effective this is? And the reality is the program was just designed to be a short-term bridge to opening up the economy again, a short-term bridge to enable firms to get back to hiring, get back to doing business as normal. If we are not able to get the economy open safely, if we're not able to hold down the level of infections and transmissions once we open up the economy, there isn't enough money in Washington to save businesses in the long term. This has to be a bridge to empowering the economy to get back to healing itself. That's the only way in the long term we can keep these businesses afloat, going, and expanding. Congressman, help me understand this. From the debt perspective, what is the concern right now about the debt? Just specifically, what's the big concern? Well, look, I think the big concern is 
the large amount of deficit that we're spending this year alone and what that means from a long-term perspective on where rates go back to once they normalize. Look, it's hard to look at the 10-year today and say, gosh, there's a debt problem in the United States, right? But once interest rates begin to normalize, as we get back to a more normal-looking economy, the question is, will we be able to hold interest rates at an appropriate level, or will interest costs continue to rise in the U.S., pushing out and crowding out all the other important spending that we think is there, right? Research and development on future cures for diseases. A lot of that goes through NIH. Defense spending, all these things will be crowded out by larger and larger interest payments on our debt should interest rates return to their normal levels. You think there could be a problem with debt sustainability in America? Is that something you actually worry about? Well, I do worry about that. And I think the important thing is to worry about it before it becomes a problem. Uh, I think the important question we have to ask ourselves is what are the changes we need to make Today, what are the changes we need to make over the next year to ensure that we can put ourselves on a path of fiscal sustainability? This isn't a problem today, as you well articulated. This isn't going to be a problem tomorrow or next year. But ultimately, one goes bankrupt slowly at first, then suddenly. The key is to catch it in the slow phase, not in the sudden phase. Representative, I I want to make sure to understand what you're saying. Are you saying that we should not add some sort of effort uh, to pump money into the economy at this point for fear of that future escalation of debt costs? Is that your argument here? No, I think my argument is we have spent $2.9 trillion of American charter and taxpayer dollars. Before we start spending more, we should ensure what that the programs are effective, as you well asked earlier. We should ensure that we're solving the right problems. We're ensuring that these are the right programs to be able to get the economy back on its feet so we can normalize again. But I think the long-term question for Americans is we, we were already at a deficit of a trillion dollars before coronavirus happened. How can we put ourselves on the path of sustainability, even outside of this large, acute dip, yeah. so that we can see a better, brighter future for Americans and not hand down a mountain yeah. of debt to our grandchildren? Congressman, we got a problem in Indiana. We thank you for listening out in Indiana today. Michelle Meyer with us with Bank of America. Michelle, I I, want to rip up the script and do something completely different than I normally would. I was thunderstruck in how economists this weekend adjusted the jobs report forward aggressively. Usually they can guesstimate it or tweak it. What did Bank of America do to extrapolate out to May into June and even into July? Did you get out well over 20% as a solid forecast? Um, so certainly, um, we think the unemployment rate will tick up further next month. Um, but we think in terms of the rate of job destruction in terms of non-farm payrolls, last month was the worst. April was by far the worst. So, you know, a rough estimate, if you look at how claims are trending thus far, which is a really good leading indicator of what we're going to see for total job um, jobs lost in the month, we can see somewhere in the order of about, you know, six to seven million decline um, in May. Um, so if we see that and we assume, you know, some kind of trend-like uh, labor force participation rate numbers based off of what we had from last month, the unemployment rate probably will tick up a bit, probably flirting with 20%, but I actually don't think we'll get above 20%. Michelle, do we have a good understanding now of the depth of the downturn to establish forecasts about the shape of the recovery. Because over the last month, we've seen so many people willing to look through the current data. And what I've grappled with is how can you establish any kind of forecast about the future without a deep understanding of where we are at the moment, the depth of the downturn? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I've been thinking about this is that it's very helpful to, to, to break this into three phases, this trajectory into three phases. The first one is the shutdown. It was extremely painful, but it is largely over. That ended in the beginning of April. Um, the second phase is the transition phase, which is when you start to see some reopening, but the shock that started in the consumer multiplies more broadly through the economy in terms of the decline in investment, the decline in housing. Um, you just you see the ramifications of this aggressive amount of, of job destruction and consumer spending decline. Um, that's the phase that we're in right now, this kind of transition period. And then the third phase is the recovery. Um, and that's really the most uncertain, and that's where you can have you know, quite a number of different scenarios, largely dependent on the trajectory of the virus. Michelle, I'm struck by the disparity in who got hit hardest so far. It is the most vulnerable workers. It is the people with the least education and the lowest wages, wiping out a lot of the job gains, uh, you know, both in a substantive as well as a quantitative uh, determination since the beginning of the last crisis. I'm wondering how much that's going to color the recovery. In other words, what are the longer-term consequences of the fact that the most vulnerable populations are getting getting slammed harder than anybody else. Sure. So, I mean, if you look at the breakdown of uh, job loss between the last two months, 38% was in leisure and hospitality. And Lisa, to your point, those are workers that tend to earn less and more considered lower-skilled, lower-wage workers. Um, so what are the ramifications? Well, if you assume that leisure and hospitality is going to take a whole lot of time to come back and it may not ever return to the pre-COVID levels given some of these structural changes that were likely to see in the economy as people learn from this pandemic experience, um, we're going to have to do a lot of um, job retool, train, you know, retooling, job training, figuring out how to redeploy this labor. And it could end up being that you have a lot of workers or a portion of the labor force that are somewhat displaced until they can figure out how to uh, get back in with a new skill set. It was somewhat akin to what we had seen during the housing crisis when you had a large portion of construction workers that were displaced for a period of time, given the nature of that shock. Um, so, so, yeah. Well, so people are focusing on this and saying the higher paid uh, jobs are remaining intact. I'm just wondering, how worried are you about a second wave of, of job cuts that, that some people are talking about in the higher earning brackets as this goes on? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Yes, the pain was driven in the lower end of the of the income spectrum, but it's broad based. When you have this degree of job cuts, it is across every industry. Ninety five percent of the industries in the last jobs report saw some decline <clears throat> in jobs. Ten percent of the job loss in the last two months was in professional and business category, which is a pretty broad category, including many high skilled jobs. Um, so, so it, it, I would argue that already is somewhat broad-based, just given the nature of, of the number of jobs that were lost. But to your point, yes, you know, the initial shock was in the COVID-sensitive sectors, leisure, hospitality, retail. As, you know, you see this uh, recession multiply and kind of work its way through the economy, and, and that can be a function of the income loss, people not spending as much, companies realizing the challenges that lie ahead, you could see, um, you know, continued uh, job jobs jobs cut, and that would be more the typical recessionary response, right? The first order was the lockdown, the extreme loss. That second order is more of that typical multiplier. What's the first and second order of the price of a home? I mean, Michelle, this is your claim to fame. Tell us what you expect in the housing market nationwide 
And for that matter, in the three zip codes we live in in New York, I mean, do you just assume housing prices decline? So housing to me is very interesting in this cycle because um, it is highly unlike what we had seen in the last cycle. So housing this time around is the victim. It is not the culprit. Um, Housing will weaken, in my view, as a result of the extreme decline in economic activity and the income loss and the job loss. Um, But because the housing market entered this cycle without very much excess, mostly that, you know, excess in terms of um, housing stock and excess in terms of leverage, um, it's not nearly as vulnerable to a correction. Um, And on top of that, you've seen a government response already pretty aggressive in terms of trying to um, underpin the housing market with uh, forbearance plans. Um, so that the Fannie Freddie mortgage holders can take forbearance up to 12 months, that makes um, the rate of foreclosures much, much lower. Um, so all that being said, I think that housing will soften, certainly. Home sales is, are falling sharply already. Housing starts are going to fall very sharply. You can see those numbers down 50%, 60% from the peak given the cyclicality wow. of housing. Um, but once you start to see some recovery come back, those numbers will come back quickly as well. Um, so it's very much going to follow the broader cycle. For home prices, nationally, we're looking for, you know, somewhere around 2 3% decline on a year-over-year basis with very deep bifurcations in the market. So mm-hmm. if you're in big urban centers, clearly the outlook looks more problematic. Um, if you're more yeah. in the outskirts and suburbs, it looks yeah, let me, John, let me translate that for you. What Michelle's saying is that three-bedroom four bath thing you're looking at over oh, the we go. river there yeah right with the view oh, yeah. it I ain't wish. going down in price that's i think we'd all love we'd love that bif- yeah, and a roof terrace <laughs> and a gym i'm sure we'd all love that you know every time michelle comes on she preps for housing because she knows you're going to ask her about housing she's the best every she's single great. time she's the best she's the michelle, rock star we have housing history. we have history i know you do i know you do before we round things out can this be the quarter that we stop annualizing gdp um no, because then you won't get these these extreme numbers if you stop. I mean, how like, useful is that to annualize GDP in a moment like this? Look, I think you just have to – I think you continue to annualize it because that's the way we always look historically at GDP. And the reason historically you would do that is because otherwise you end up getting these very small numbers if you don't annualize it. So annualizing is much yeah. better of the trend. Obviously, today, annualizing, you get these aggressively large numbers. Um, so to me, it's important to put these numbers into perspective. Let's say we get a 30% annualized decline. Talk about it in terms of the quarter-over-quarter annualized. Talk about it just the quarter-over-quarter change unannualized. Talk about it in terms of the year-over-year right. year change. Just look at a variety of indicators, in my view. Yeah. What are you looking at late in the week? One more question, Michelle, not on housing. Retail Thanks. sales claims, which matters the most? Which is the most valuable? Um. So I would say, you know, claims continue to, to be really high up on the list in terms of being able to track um, the trajectory for uh, for the labor market. Um, and we have been seeing a pretty steady deceleration in the rate of claims, which is quite nice. So we're looking for $2.8 million. Obviously mm-hmm. still aggressively high, um, but, you know, it, it is coming down and it's steadily coming down from the peak, which shows you that healing in the economy, although, you know, a modest healing only. Um, the retail sales numbers, obviously very important as well. That would be for the month of April. We already saw a pretty sharp, uh, sharp decline in, in March, and that was the March numbers were driven just from the last two weeks of March falling dramatically. So the handoff into April is really, really poor, and that's going to bring retail sales down as well. So expect a pretty ugly number mm. there. 
Michelle, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for joining us on housing, the labour market and the broader economy. Right now, we want to really nail down what everyone's talking about, and that is, of course, reflation. The idea of aggressively imputing a new inflation is sort of arbitrary. It's really not in the economic textbooks. Then there's inflation, which we all know. We've all lived. And then there's lesser inflation. That's called disinflation, D-I-S. And then there's this gloomy thing from Europe and another time pass, early Eisenhower. Outright price decline, deflation. No one owns this territory like Gary Schilling. We're thrilled that Dr. Schilling could join us uh, right now, writing his wonderful uh, newsletter. Gary, you said there's good and bad deflation. In a pandemic, is there good or bad disinflation and good and bad deflation? Well, good good inflation is, is like you've had in times of tremendous productivity growth. That happened in the latter part of the uh, 19th century and, again, actually in the 1920s when basically supply outruns demand and so prices decline. Uh, bad deflation as a result where demand is destroyed, demand goes down more than supply. And I think now we're more in the latter. We're more in the bad deflation because we're, we're, the supply, uh, particularly on a global basis, has, right. has not diminished that much. But demand certainly has dried up, at least for now. With all the monetary, central bank, and fiscal action, and even more action to come that we've seen, does that exacerbate these price change moves? Does it make for a greater disinflation? Um, well, I, I don't know if it, if, it, if it does that, Tom, but it, it, it certainly is, is disruptive and you know, I, I think you have to you have to consider that all this all this monetary and fiscal stimuli is really not doing that much. I mean, you, you look back and what happened after the 0709 recession, the Fed uh, went into massive quantitative uh, quantitative ease. And what happened? We had the slowest economic recovery in the post-war period. Yeah, the money went into stocks, but it didn't get, go into spending and, and investing. And I think you have the same thing. Now, we also had massive fiscal stimulus back then. Uh, so, you know, these, these, uh, you're fighting against tremendous forces. I, I, think, we're, I think we're dealing with the, with the greatest shock to the world's economy since World War II and in terms of disruption and the length of time it's going to take to get reoriented. Gary, that's exactly where I wanted to go, especially given your credentials as one of the top-ranked economists out there uh, by a number of places. You wrote in a recent column for Bloomberg Opinion that you think that people are getting a little ahead of themselves and that we're headed toward something more akin to the 1929 market crash in the early 1930s Great Depression. Where are so many economists, I'm thinking uh, of some houses, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, that are looking for a U-shaped recovery or even a V-shaped recovery, saying that we're going to see a a big rebound in the latter half of 2020. Where are they wrong, in your view? Well, I I think their likely error is that they are assuming that business and consumer spending revive a lot faster than I think. You've had the disruption to supply chains. You've had a whole change in the way people behave. Yeah, okay, people aren't going to stay at home forever, but I think they're going to be a lot less likely to come out. We don't have anything like a vaccine that's going to ensure people that they're not going to get 
uh, COVID-19 when they do go out. And, and, of course, when you look at the disruption of supply chains and the realization that we were relying on China for a lot of basic pharmaceuticals and so on, to work all this out and expect a, a B is, is unlikely. And also, uh, this, this, at least the history is that any time you've had over 30% decline in, in uh, the stock market, uh, it's, it's never ended in less than six months. Uh, that's history. doesn't mean it can't be a V this time, but I think it's highly unlikely. Well, what do you say to the arguments that this time the fiscal and monetary response has been unprecedented, both in its scope and its speed? Uh, does that change the equation? Well, it, it, it might, but as I just mentioned, we had the same thing in response to the, the Great uh, Recession, the 0709 uh, decline. You know, massive, uh, the, the, the Fed and other central banks knocked the rates down to zero. Then massive quantitative easing. Then we had fiscal stimuli that was the extent of, of 6% of GDP. Yeah, things are bigger this time, but this is a bigger shock. Bear in mind back then that that was a shock to housing, but people's lives were not disrupted. Now, of course, if you were somebody who was way out on a limb with a subprime mortgage, you were in trouble. But most people had had a little impact. But this, this affects everybody. So to say that you've had much more monetary and fiscal stimuli, yeah, but you've had a much greater problem. And in my judgment, it still does not simply mean that things are going to turn around on a dime. Gary Schilling, thank you so much. Gary Schilling with A. Gary Schilling. And, of course, this wonderful, uh, lengthy, I should say, newsletter, almost a monograph when he puts it out. Right here we speak at the Johns Hopkins University, their Bloomberg School of Public Health. And, of course, that is Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP, this radio and television operation as well. His philanthropy to his alma mater and engineering school at Johns Hopkins. But it goes much further than that. And one of their assets is Joshua Sharfstein. He is vice dean. And uh, we caught up with him on the strange thing called this lockdown. The ability to open retail space depends on more than masks and gloves. Masks are really, um, you know, a stopgap measure. How well they work isn't really as well known as you might think. So the most important thing is the ability to stay away from each other physically and have barriers between people, um, particularly like a cash register, that would prevent droplets from spreading um, better than a mask would. So... I think it's possible in some areas to do that. Um, uh, as cases come, uh, are coming down, as we have more public health measures in place, as the hospitals are doing better, but it has to be done very carefully. And it's not if you just wear a mask and gloves, you're good to go. Josh, how does contact tracing work? Is it the most effective tool we have right now? It is a really critical tool. And the idea is we want to stop the virus from spreading from person to person without having to tell everyone to go home and stay at home. And so what you do is you find someone who has this uh, coronavirus, maybe they got a, had a test and they're positive, you call them right away, you find out who they've been in contact with during their infectious period, which is a couple days before they started symptoms, and then quick, you call them, you tell them that they may have been exposed and that they should quarantine themselves so that when they start getting infectious, there's nobody for them to give it to. That's the basic idea. And it requires a lot of people to do. I know New York is planning to hire something like 10,000 people 
But if you can do it, and even if it's not perfect, you can really slow the spread of the virus. Joshua Shostein of the Johns Hopkins University giving us an update, and we'll do that through the week as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.